Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Jonathan Mayberry. Jonathan is a New York Times bestselling and five-time Bram Stoker award-winning author, producer, editor, comic book writer, playwright, and content creator for IDW, Marvel, and Dark Horse Comics, and the creator of V Wars, which premieres on Netflix on 12.5. He was named one of today's top 10 horror writers. His books have been sold to more than 40 countries, and he's also a writing teacher and a lecturer. Jonathan's newest novel, Rage, a Joe Ledger and Rogue Team International novel, the first in a new spin-off series from his original Joe Ledger novels, just launched this month through St. Martin's Press. Jonathan, that's a lot of stuff. Very impressive works there. How's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me on. So tell us, where are you in the world right now? It's always my first question. Well, I, this is my first interview from my new place in San Diego, where it is currently going through a heat wave. And uh, I'm looking out of mountains and trees and beats the heck out of what I, where I grew up in Philadelphia, where it was, uh, my view was brick walls. And is this new living situation, I assume it's a step up. And how does environment play into your role as a writer? Well, it's funny because uh, I grew up in Philly. I lived in Bucks County, Pennsylvania for years, and it was much more of an educated group, uh, more literate, a lot more readers. And that kind of fuels a little bit when you, when you can talk to people who are kind of interested in the same sorts of things. They're interested in the arts, they're interested in reading and literature and so on. And um, first we moved uh, to a different part of, of this area and found that there's a marvelous writing community and a massive, massive readership. Everyone out here reads. So that stokes the enthusiasm for someone who does what I do. Even if they're not necessarily you know, the people who read my kind of stuff, they're still readers, which makes us all book nerds together. So that's, you know, it's like living in a, in a, a fuel-filled environment for, uh, for stoking the writing engines. So I briefly described who you are and what you do. You write in a lot of different mediums. When you meet someone for the first time, tell us, how do you describe yourself? Well, when they ask what I write, and people often do, I, I tell them I write horror, science fiction, fantasy, thrillers, mysteries, and comics. And I write for middle grade te- uh, teens and mostly adults. So I'm, I'm kind of all over the place. And that's, that's pretty much what I say to give them an expectation. 13 years ago, when I introduced myself, I, I would say I write, you know, uh, articles and, and uh, not fiction books. But that was a different phase of my writing career. And now I'm, I'm all about the fiction. And tell us about the projects you're working on now. Now, I know Rage just came out recently, but you mentioned that you have some other projects you're working on. Tell us about what we can expect, what's going on right now. Well, it's, it's a remarkably busy year for me. Of course, every year seems to be getting crazier. I've got a new comic I'm writing. Issue 2 just came out. It's called Pandemica. It's a science fiction social commentary comic about a, a group that's created ethnic-specific bioweapons. They're, they're selling the opportunity to create ethnic gen- genocide. And, a group, and, of course, the heroes of the story are a group that's there to stop them. And um, it's very much hard to science and real science. When I came up with the concept, I thought everything in it was going to be 
dystopian science fiction. Turns out that the molecular biologists and scientists I work with for my research tell me just about everything in the comic is absolutely doable. Oh, wow. Which is, it's so very that, scary. Yeah, the science, like the CRISPR gene editing technology and, and also transgenics and so on, have brought us to the point where we could actually do the Nazi master race eugenics program. And that is scary as hell. So it's a very much a cautionary tale. So I'm writing that. Just about to write the fifth issue. The second issue just came out. And then I have uh, V-Wars coming out in December, December 5th, first 10-episode season. And, you know, that's, that's a science fiction show. It's a science fiction take on vampires. Melting polar ice releases an ancient virus that triggers a dormant gene. And that gene codes for a, a set of symptoms or physical changes that, in centuries past, were how the legends of vampires started. We find out now in the story it's, it's a genetic disorder. But it is also the next stage in human evolution. So it's, it's a fight between, you know, the people as, as we all know them and this new group and the conflicts that come in, you know, good guys and bad guys on both sides. And um, it stars Ian Summerholder from Vampire Diaries. And he's a, he's a pretty great guy. And in fact, tomorrow night in uh, L.A. at the Barnes Noble at the Grove, a beautiful upscale mall, he and I and Adrian Holmes, who plays the, the lead vampire in this story, are doing a, a signing event. And talking about the the, the, the comics, the, the books, and the, and the show. So those things are happening. I've got a bunch of short stories I'm writing for different things. I'm editing the Rebirth of Weird Tales magazine, which is this legendary horror magazine. I helped bring it back, and we're making sure that it does not bring with it some of the, the issues it had in older generations. You know, some of the homophobia, sexism, and racism that were were part of the mindsets of some of the writers who were there when Weird Tales was founded. So we're, it's a much more diverse but also really scary magazine. So doing all those things and promoting Rage, which is, I think, the best thriller I've ever written. It's novel number 36. Wow. Before we get into process, you mentioned how you described yourself years back. Tell us how you got to this point. Did you always want to be a writer? Were you always interested in science fiction and horror? Walk us through that point to now where you just mentioned you have you know a lot of books well, in your resume. I was one of those kids that always wanted to be a writer. I mean, I never had any other goal. I did other things. My day job most of my adult life was first bodyguard, then bouncer, then jiu-jitsu instructor for many, many years. Japanese traditional jiu-jitsu and also kenjutsu. And I was also a trainer for SWAT, special forces and, and other groups. So... That was kind of my day job. I started selling magazine feature articles when I was in my junior year of college, Temple University. And I went on to sell um, about 1,200 of them, I think, and also about 3,000 columns, fillers, reviews. And along, that, along the way, I wrote a bunch of columns, textbooks for my courses and some other courses, and wrote two plays that were produced locally, not nationally produced. I uh, wrote greeting cards. I, I did a little bit of everything, anything that... that was writing and had a buck attached to it, I would try it to see if it would be the, the thing I most loved. And writing magazine features and how-to articles was what I, I really thought I wanted to, to do. And then in the uh, late 1990s, I had had a four-book deal with a small press, and I, I'd done three martial arts books. But I wanted to do something different for the fourth book. And since my grandmother, who was pretty much a, an old lady version of Luna Lovegood from, from Harry Potter, a little girl that believed in everything, that was grandmother. So uh, because she introduced me to, to folkloric monsters, the, the versions of vampires, werewolves, and so on that appear in world folklore, which are completely different from the Hollywood versions, I decided to do a book, I pitched a book on vampire folklore. And um, the publisher encouraged me to publish it under a pen name because he was afraid my martial arts readers would 
think I'd suddenly fried a neuron or something. It came under the name of Shane McDougall. And uh, that was the only book Shane ever did. I eventually killed him off. But it gave me a taste for horror that I had lost along the way. I, I was a mystery uh, fan as a kid. Got into science fiction TV mostly. You know, the original Star Trek, and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and Time Tunnel, things like that. And it then met a couple of great writers. I met Ray Bradbury and Richard Matheson uh, at a New York event. And they mentored me for a while. So that gave me a love of science fiction and fantasy. But I never wanted to write it. I just liked them and liked their books. But then I, you know, after researching the horror uh, folklore, I thought maybe I'll try to see if I'd like doing a novel. So I, I wrote a novel called Ghost Road Blues, in which you know, characters encounter the folkloric versions of vampires and werewolves. And, and as I was writing it, I, I had to learn how to write fiction. I'd never, never written fiction before and um, fell in love with it. And I wrote that book and its two sequels. I got an agent quickly. She sold it quickly. And I fell in love with what is clearly where I should have gone early on, which is fiction. So it's a, it's a long, it's a much longer version of that story, but that is, you know, I went up following my dream and put a different version of that dream. Um, and I'm happy as a client. Now, we usually frame our episodes around themes. In this case, I would love to discuss your writing process. Maybe using rage as an example. Yeah. I always, well, first of all, I'm a science junkie. I love science. I, I, I love research. I've written a lot of, about science in, in various books. And one of my biggest influences was I Am Legend by Richard Matheson. In the 1954 novel, and it was a vampire apocalypse novel. But people think of zombies because of the movies that have been made based on it, but it, it's a vampire story. But it was the first vampire story, first horror story, really in which science was actually used to explain it. In Frankenstein and Jekyll and Hyde, they allude to science, but they don't actually give you the science. And in I Am Legend, you know, we, Matheson walked us through the process of a scientific exploration of this phenomenon. I found that fascinating. It, it was an influence on Michael Crichton's writing, and I was a huge Crichton fan, and it became an influence for a whole genre of, of fiction, the weird science genre. And you know, we can all trace it back. We can trace it back to Frankenstein, but I think more fairly it's traced back to I Am Legend. So with Rage, uh, the story deals with a special ops group. It's the first book of a new series. In this series, they become an international rather than a purely American group. And they're uh, up against terrorists with weird science weapons. In this particular case, something has been released on a North Korean island that causes everyone there to go crazy and kill each other. Parents killing children, everyone killing each other. And, you know, the U.S. Uh, and South Korea are blamed for it. So, you know, my hero and his team has to go in there to figure out what's going on to keep the uh, terrorist act from sparking a war, which it certainly would in that region. And then, you know, reacting and responding as this, the story gets worse, because it does spread out from there. It goes to South Korea and Japan and elsewhere. So it's a very political novel, which I'm also interested in politics. The science is as rock solid as you can get before you have to take that little step over the line into fiction. And, uh, you know, I use experts to make sure that my science is good. And um, it has a lot of action, a lot of sarcasm. But one of the things that, that is a, a kind of a, a particular aspect of my thrillers is they're not the typical gun porn thriller where you know if you have a spec ops group it's all about you know which caliber and you know 
kill them all like God, sort them out sort of mentality. Right. And that's not me. You know, I'm a humanist. So we also explore the human effect, the emotional and psychological effect of having to do this kind of work. If you if you are pulling a trigger, even if you're fighting the bad guys, it's still going to hurt you. It's still going to affect and change you. What is that process, and, and how do the people involved in it deal with it? How you know how do how do you reconcile the fact that you're a killer, even if you're killing for the good guys? It's different, vastly different than say the, the first person shooter games, where it's just kill, 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 and there is no pause for the human cost for you know its effect on the mentality. So all of those elements, you know, are brought together in a book like Rage. Politics, uh, hard science, horror elements, because, you know, it is a kind of a rage. It looks like a rage virus, kind of like 28 Days Later. It looks like that kind of a model, though that's not actually what, what they, the, the bioweapon is. And also, you know, the, the humanism of being a, a warrior rather than just a soldier, somebody who understands the philosophy and, of combat and the purposes for which one fights. Now, as far as science specifically, did you study science at any point? Obviously, you've written a bunch of, of novels at this point, but through working with many scientists, do you feel like that has almost been a replacement as far as like having a, a science degree almost? Yes. I am not a scientist. I studied journalism in college. Uh, always loved science and read, I read a lot of science. I read science journals of various kinds. Read any article in science, I not only read the article, but if there's an expert mentioned, I, I will research that expert to find out what organization they're with, what they may have published, what I can read, and so on. My love for using actual real-world scientists began actually just before my fiction career, though. I was doing a nonfiction book for Citadel Press called Zombie CSU, The Forensics of the Living Dead. It was part of the 40th anniversary of My Living Dead. And I wanted to write a book in which we explored how the real world would react and respond to something like a zombie apocalypse. So I talked to hundreds of experts in all different fields, uh, everything from you know, first responders, street cops, and so on, all the way to uh, pathologists, niche scientists like forensic odontologists, which were bite mark experts, hematologists, virologists, and so on. You know, I really researched it and found how, how different the real-world science is from the assumptions that we who love horror would make. And um, so when I switched to fiction, I kept using the same process. I would reach out to experts. And two, two key questions really, really helped me get the, the, the deeper science, which makes the books work uh, really well. One is, aside from the questions I, I already you know, wanted to ask, I would, I would ask one question is, what don't I know enough about your, your field of science to even ask you? Like, basically, what, am, what goes beyond my assumptions to, to the truth? Tell me, tell me those. And that's where they really open up because there are so many things that we as, as ordinary folks assume about science, and partly because we've seen science fiction movies, without knowing what the actual science is. And sometimes that causes us to have to change the plot we're constructing. The other question I ask is, what's the weirdest or most interesting thing going on in your field right now? And there is not one scientist on this planet who doesn't have a few really good anecdotes locked and loaded. <laughs> question. Good example, with this, with, I was talking to molecular biologists, transgenic scientists, and I asked that question um, back in 2008 or 9. I was researching a book on transgenics, a novel, and they said, oh, well, you know, the spider goats. I'm like, what? <laughs> and I said, oh, about the spider goats? I'm like, how 
first of all, if there are such things as platygotes, how does everyone not know about these? Turns out they found a way to take the silk-producing gene from the orb weaver spider and give it to goats. And I'm you know, immediately conjuring images of like spider goats climbing on the wall. You know, <laughs> Unfortunately, they don't have any physical changes other than being able to produce a large quantity of silk, which you know, uh, is in their milk. So that they, they harvest these large quantities of spider silk from the milk that's used in everything from uh, industrial projects to the latest generation of body armor because spider silk is many times stronger than structural steel. But I didn't know that. And, you know, I start looking up spider goats, and there's farms all over Canada and other places in the United States that have been there for like 15, 20 years. You know, it's like, how the hell is this not the, the thing every human being is talking about? Spider goats, you know? So those things allow me to add elements of the story that people could wind up seeing and then saying, oh, that can't be true. And they look it up and they find out it's really true. And that makes the story more believable because it makes it harder for the reader to tell where the science left off and the fiction began. And the only way I get that level of detail, that level of, of credibility, is by asking these world-class scientists. And I have never heard of, I've never met one, not a single one, who was not willing to talk to a writer. And this is before, even before I was a bestseller. They just like us to get it right. And the same goes for cops. They'll, they'll take on ride-alongs. They'll just will invite you to autopsies. Um, SWAT teams will, will you know, take you to the, through how they do what they do. Forensics teams will let you roll out with them. They love us to get it right. And I'm hungry to make sure those details wind up in my books. As far as coming up with all of your ideas, you kind of briefly discussed how you interview scientists. Would you say most of the ideas you come up with are from maybe reading a news story about something going on? Is it from those interviews with scientists where they tell you about something like a spider goat? Is it a, a what if? Like, how do you get most of your ideas? There's two primary ways, the largest number of my ideas. Um, one, I, I subscribe to a lot of science journals, uh, some for the trade, you know, actually magazines published for scientists. And often I have to sit there with, with Google and try to figure out what the hell they're saying. And the other way is um, I subscribe to a lot of, of uh, newsletters and uh, like Nat Geo and, and uh, Popular Science and a bunch of others. And sometimes they send out a little tidbit, like a little cool little news story and say, wow, that's really cool. The public just digests this as fun science candy. We writers see that and, oh, and think, oh, crap, that's an actual story. So right. we drill down deeper and almost always if it's something that could be a potential story idea or story element. I'll look for the expert who was quoted in that article and then find them and then reach out through oh, wow. their contact page and say, look, I'm doing this. Can you give me, you know, I want to use this. Can you give me a comment? And I, I can't tell you what I did in Rage because it's a spoiler for what the, the bioweapon is. <laughs> yeah, to those. One funny thing is there's a character in Rage, Dr. John Samar, C-M-A-R. He's an actual real-world guy. And um, I found out about him. He's an infectious disease doctor, epidemiologist. His, um, he had originally been the expert for my, my buddy Scott Sigler, also a New York Times bestseller, for his, some of his early uh, weird science thrillers. And Scott introduced me to him. I started you know, tapping him for all sorts of questions. I would come up with something weird like, can you, can you use pertussis as a delivery system for a weaponized rabies? And he's like, yeah, you can. Here's how. And he'll give me you know, versions of it that are the scientific jargon and then a version in human speak so that I can have what my hero, who's not a scientist, understand it or say it. But I went up writing him into the series. He's now a recurring character 
as somebody who works with the secret organization, my, my ear is attached to it. So danger, if you're a scientist, they're getting written into the books. I did it with the UFO conspiracy novel, Extinction Machine. I did it with some of the geologists in um, Deep Silence. And uh, I'll be doing some for my next book, which deals a lot with uh, Relentless, which is the next book after Rage, which will deal with various ty types of chemical enhancement for superior strength and also um, bionics and uh, exoskeletons for the next generation of, of uh, combat soldiers. And I know some of those guys. I was on a panel with some of the scientists. Which, side note, I get invited to do panels at, say, the Fleet Center in Balboa Park in San Diego, which is the Science Center, and elsewhere. And if there's a scientist on that panel, I am definitely going to have that person's business card and I will them until they give me all sorts of cool information. The guy, Dr. Ronald Coleman, um, who's a molecular biologist, is my go-to guy for my pandemic account. So I met him on a panel, and um, now he's, uh, you know, he's on speed dial. You obviously write a lot. You're very prolific and you're very passionate, which is clear from, you know, just hearing you talk about, you know, science fiction and science. What motivates you? What gives you that daily motivation to keep creating and writing every day? And also on the other side of that, how do you avoid writer's block? Because it sounds like you might not have it. Let me, let's, let's talk with, talk about the, uh, the motivation thing first. That's, that's the easier. <laughs> I love every aspect of what I do. And, you know, figure, what's my job description? I get to play in my imagination all day long and get paid for it. I'm a professional daydreamer. How could you not like that job? Um, and also, I write the books. I, When I was a kid, one of the things Ray Bradbury told me is, don't just write the book you would read. Write the book you would go out of your way to track down and read. That's what I do. I write books that I would be passionate about as a reader. So that makes it fun to, to jump in. And, and I do the same with comics, too. I write the comics I would read. But as far as writer's block, that, that's a funny thing, because I actually don't believe writer's block is a thing. Interesting. I'll explain, because I know some people you know, hate me for saying that, but writer's block is a label that we give to a whole bunch of different challenges. And yes, they can stop some writers dead in their tracks. But every single one of those challenges has a fix or a workaround. But because... We, you know, we often don't know what that workaround is or know that there is one. We tend to think, oh, well, I, I just hit writer's block. I've heard about writer's block. Now I've got it. I'm stopped. But everything has a fix. Sometimes it's maybe you need to stop being a pantser, somebody who writes by the seat of their pants, and maybe try being a plotter. Or maybe you should not write um, in a linear fashion. Jump ahead. If you're stuck, jump ahead and write something more fun and, um, you know, get the writing mojo back, then go back to where you left off. Sometimes it's you need to do more research. Sometimes it's you may not know an element of craft that's actually going to get you through that scene, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everything I've ever heard somebody describe to me as writer's block is something that I know for a fact has a fix. So I, 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 if I run into something that, that slows me down, usually for me, the most common fix, and I found this is a lot true for a lot of other writers, if I get to a certain point in the book and I just can't seem to move it forward, that's because very likely one of the most recent things, one of the last chapters, whatever, that I wrote is probably not right. It's not accurate to, to where I need to go, or it's, or it's taking, there's a logic flaw somewhere in there, or there's some issue with it. So I'll go back to before then, to, when, to the last time I remember being enthusiastic. I'll cut out everything else that follows it and start writing the book again from that point on. And often what I found is fresh, you know, taking a breath and trying it again gives me a, 
more motivation. And another trick I learned, and I, I don't remember which writer pioneered this or first started talking about it. So, you know, I can't give credit where credit's due, but I find that if I jump ahead and write the ending to either a novel or a short story, it supercharges me to, to get there. I now have a, a clear bullseye that I can aim at without wandering off in, in other directions. And yes, I know that's a mixed metaphor, but I can aim at that bullseye and it allows me to get there much faster and to get there along a route that actually serves a story, opposed to maybe just me wandering around trying to find the story. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writerexperience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writerexperience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favorite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favorite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. You mentioned the terms pantser and plotter as two different types of people who either choose to use maybe an outline or not. I imagine you're maybe an outline guy, but is that true? Yes. I have what I call the organic outline. I always write an outline. Um, I like structure because, you know, it, I like science. And, and a story is the logical cause and effect of of this, this, and this event would necessarily create this kind of ending. You know, there, there's a logic to it. Also, by having an outline, I, I can foreshadow and, and lay clues and so on. But that said, along the way, you know, you have new ideas. You can't expect all of your best ideas the day you write your outline. That's irrational. So when I write an outline, it's very bare bones, like all bullet-pointed uh, report outline, you know, very, very basic. And then I allow for growth. And sometimes that means a new character will step in, or maybe my research will take a different turn, as it did in my novel Kill Switch. You know, I, thought, I, I had a whole plot about directed energy weapons being used to cause meltdowns in nuclear power plants. And then I found out that's actually impossible, because the way in which power plants work in the United States, every power plant works, they use electromagnets to keep the control rods up. If the power goes out, the control rods simply drop its gravity. So none of them will melt down that way. So I had to change the story, but I didn't know that until I'd already sort of written the story. So I had I have to allow the outline to change. With Rage, one of the very few books, very few that I've written, where um, the outline I wrote is the outline I, uh, outline I created was the outline that became the book that I finished. 
Very little of that book changed along the way. And I think that may be more of the case with, with this new series going forward. And also, just a side note, the character of Joe Ledger was in 10 books prior to this, the Joe Ledger Department of Military Sciences series. That started with Patient Zero, ended with Deep Silence. This new series is intended very much as an entry point for readers who aren't familiar with the characters and the setup. Um, it's a brand new organization, and uh, only a few of the characters from the previous books are here. So it's intended for readers to step in and say, hey, let me, you know, without having to do the homework of 10 previous novels, of being able to jump in and, and see what the hell's going on. Tell us about the actual writing process for you. Number one, are you a night writer or a morning writer? And then what's your process look like when you kind of sit down? Are you writing on paper? Are you pulling up a Word document? I'm a computer guy. I, 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 don't, I don't write paper anymore. I started early on doing I write, you know, three quarters of a million words a year for publication, so I, I can't do paper. And I write 4,000 words a day, typically. If I'm at conventions, it might be two, but, you know, I don't take days off, you know. But when I, I get up, you know, it's my day job, so I, I get up in the morning. I like to, the idea of going to work because it helps me structure my head in terms of business. So often in the morning, I'll go to a coffee shop or, or a local restaurant where they know me. They'll block out a table for me, get, you know, by texting them, let them know I'm coming. I go in, sit down. I do a few hours of work there. And then I, I typically wind up at home. I have a home office and um, spend the rest of the day working there. And uh, you know, I, I write eight hours a day. And I also have to work into that. 10 minutes an hour for social media. Every 50 minutes, my, my alarm goes off, and it reminds me to do 10 minutes of social media. And I'm all over Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and I have my, you know, my, my website. So I do 10 minutes of social media every day, every hour. And I also have to allow time for business part of things, because when you, when you write for a living, there's a lot of different projects. And I'm a high-output writer. I write three to four novels a year, plus comics, plus short stories, plus articles and essays. So all of that needs to be budgeted time-wise. So part of the job, really, is time management and looking, looking at your process to figure, where am I wasting time and where can I get new time? You know, where, where can I add more minutes to do this project or respond to those emails or whatever? The process that I use now evolves. I've been in fiction for 13 years, so I've been a full-time writer only for 13 years. But in that 13 years, I've gone from spending, you know, well, for example, my first novel took me three and a half years to write. It was published in 2006. My last novel, Rage, took me three months to write. What would you say has changed in your process between when you first sat down to work on it and now? What have you refined to get to that high output you described? Well, I learned what the craft of writing is. I mean, I was trained as a journalist, not a creative writer. So I had to actually do research to find out, you know, what is figurative and descriptive language? What is, what is pace and voice and, and uh, what are all the, the elements of, of the fiction craft that I don't know or I don't know well enough? And then had to go look for them in books that I really enjoy to see how experienced writers use them. Not to copy, but to learn from you know expert usage. And I didn't know that when I did my first novel. I was teaching myself. I tended to also to overwrite my first novel. It was a um, big, ponderous, bloated monster of a first book, which I then shaved down during the 18 phases of revision. Now, things that, that have changed now is you know, I, I, I know the process well enough. I know what my writing skill set is and know where I can stretch and so on. But also, when I finish a book and it's gone through you know, my revisions, my editor's notes, the copy editor's notes, 
proofreader phase and it's ready for publication, I read that final version of it. And that allows me to become familiar with my professional edited voice. Once that I started doing that, once I was able to read the version of my, my writing that is the version that will actually go to print, which is substantially different from the draft I do first, by becoming familiar with that, I can then aim at that polished voice. Oh, wow. And that's a tremendous amount of time. I'm able to, to write more, like instead of doing, you know, 18 drafts, I can do a couple of passes. And stuff, and those passes are quick because I know what areas to focus on because I know what my weak areas are, you know, and I know that from editing editors' notes over over the years that keep hitting similar notes. Like, okay, that's that's an issue. Let me fix that in this draft by avoiding that mistake. So it's it's really important to become familiar to pay attention to your own process, but also your own growth as a writer. We've heard the process of writing a novel as almost like ironing a sheet, meaning your first draft is very um, crude, so to speak, and then you kind of polish it and polish it through your revisions. Would you say that your process is like that as your first draft, you know, not as structured just to get through it, and then you kind of go back through, or do you kind of refine chapter by chapter? I never rewrite until the book's done, for one thing. I always finish the first draft. But in terms of revision, I don't re- revise the book as a whole. I go looking for elements. Like I'll do one quick pass for chronology, one quick pass for uh, story logic, one quick pass for character relationships, and so on. And each of those passes makes for one actual revision. So it's, it's a layered revision. I don't like the idea of revising the entire thing at the same time because I feel that that doesn't allow me to get in the, in the right gear for each thing. But I'm I don't do as many passes because now my my style, my first draft style, is much more evolved at book 36 than it was at book one, as it should be, or, or I'd be a sloppy writer. My first draft of my first novel reads like someone who may have been mentally compromised or totally drunk because it is rambling and all over the damn place. My most recent novel, actually, Rage was number 35. Number 36 is Lost Roads, a young adult novel. It's coming out in February. That first draft is, is a much better first draft. It reads more like an advanced draft for me, but it, as it should, because it's my 36th novel. The novel I'm writing now, which is a horror thriller, um, I don't think it's going to need more than one or two quick passes before um, it goes through the editing process at the publisher, because I'm a better writer now than I was when I wrote my first novel, Ghost Road Blues. And I should be a better novelist than when I wrote Lost Roads or, or whatever age, because I learned from them as well. At this point in your career, do you have an editor involved from the beginning? I know obviously when a writer is first getting started, they go the query process to an agent, the agent pitches to an editor. For you now, do you tend to have the same editor on most of your stuff? And at what point would you say when you work on the manuscript, are you ready for the editor to get involved? Well, the editor I work with now, the editors, plural, I work with now, are all the editors who have already pre-bought the novel. Um, I'm at the point now where, like with my Joe Ledger thrillers, all I need to do is get the title of the next book. Page is able to sell it on that. That's one of the benefits of having a Knockwood of a successful career. If I were to go to a new genre with a new new publishing house, new editor, I would then need to probably write, say, 50 sample pages uh, and, and an outline for my agent to sell it. But most often, I mean, my books are pre-sold. I've got five or six pre-sold right now. Um, so I already know those editors. And I've worked, you know, like my editor at the Rage, 
I've done 20 books with, uh, thrillers, um, horror novels, and actually probably more than 20. But also, he's been the editor for a couple of my anthologies as well. So I know him. I know his style. So when I have done my original pass and uh, original draft and then my layered first pass, it goes right to him. So it goes right to the publisher or the editor at the publishing house. And uh, Michael Humler at Macmillan, the St. Martin's Griffin, part of Macmillan, will get, you know, a moderately clean version of it. But I get a little bit of a grace. I, writers who are successful and have long-standing relationships with publishing houses get the grace of being able to turn in a not perfect version of a book. Because we know that the editor is going to have input. So we then, you know, he, he gives me notes and I do a, a, a substantial pass then. And that's the version that will go through the copy edit and the uh, proofreading. But and with si with my young adult, it's you know Simon and Schuster, it's, uh, Liz Cosner is my editor there. I've got different editors with the comic book companies and for other presses, including some of the in other imprints at Macmillan that I, I've worked with. Like there's one a young adult imprint called believe it or not imprint. Um, <laughs> I've done two books with them and uh, tour. I've done a couple of books with which, and they're all Macmillan imprints. How do you know when a, a novel is close to completion? You walked us through kind of the process of working with an editor and obviously a copy editor, all these kind of steps, but when do you know when it's ready? There's a couple of things that are part intuition and part um, analysis. One is, you know, the story is complete. and I've made sure it's a logical story. Everything lines up in terms of cause and effect, but also the characters are real and they're going through real stuff. They have real emotions, real reactions real consequences. When those two things align, you know, a logical story with characters who are deeply affected by it and who, whose experience drives the story, then I'm, I'm ready to send it out. And if, I, if I've made an error of that, my editor will tell me pretty quick. Now, one other thing that does happen right now is I'm fortunate enough at this point in my career that I have a full-time assistant, Dana Fredsky, who is also a novelist by the way. And, um, I'll give her the book and, and have her go through and do a quick logic pass, you know, because she doesn't, I don't share my outline with her. I just give her the final draft, or the, the first draft or something. So if there's a, a logic flaw or some obvious thing that I'm too close to it to see, she will find it for sure. So I get those notes, uh, and she rips through a novel pretty quickly, and she does the same thing with my short stories. I'll get those notes pretty quickly, and um, that will be part of that layered pass I do. We'll, we'll be incorporating her notes on um, any structural flaws that are, are you know, glaring. Tell us about the next steps once the book is finished. You obviously are promoting Rage right now. What's your involvement there? Does the involvement become lesser, you know, the longer your career gets? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're not out there all the time as you are with an earlier book because it isn't so much promoting the early book as promoting you as an author of the book. So you're early on, you're establishing your career you're making your bones in terms of, of hitting a blog and review sites, uh, a lot of bookstore appearances, a lot of social media stuff. But, you know, th this many books in, I have a, a very substantial social, social media follower. And also, I, I, I know that bookstores will carry my book. So I don't need to do as many appearances. And also, over the last 14 years, book signings have become less popular anyway because you know, a lot of the bookstores, you know, are, are fighting to stay in business. And a book signing is a little expensive. Even if the publisher puts up some of the money, it's an expensive event. So unless you think you're going to pack the place, and quite frankly, by the time the book signing may show up, 
the book may already have been out for a couple of days. And so your fans, your big fan base, the ones who would ordinarily come out for signing, have already bought the book. And they may have bought it on ebook. They may have bought it on Audible. I have a really strong Audible following. So bookstore appearances are fun. I do a few. I just did one for Rage uh, last week, which was a whole bunch of fun. I shared it with my friend uh, Tori Eldridge, who had her first novel out, Ninja Daughter. And we, we shared an event at Mysterious Galaxy in San Diego. A whole bunch of fun. Thanks, Packed House. But I'm not going to be doing too many more signings. What I do a lot of these days, though, is I'm at a lot of conventions and conferences around the country. So I'll make sure the bookseller has rage there, and then we'll set up a, a signing and usually a Q&A so I can talk about the book, the series, uh, why I love doing it. We'll do a nice Q&A where they ask me the questions they want to hear. That drives sales really nicely. The other thing I do, and this I do, I tend to do more than I do bookstore appearances, is uh, Facebook Live events. Love those because I can reach people all over the world. It doesn't cost them anywhere anything to drive to see me. They can just hear me talk about it, go to their local bookstore or order it online, depending on their preference. And we can all you know talk about the books. And I get anywhere from two to eight thousand people uh, wow. signing in Facebook Live events. So they're a whole bunch of fun. And um, I talk about it on social media tons. You know, I'm constantly. And I one of the things about social media is. I share a lot of it with them from the beginning. Sometimes I'll have contests for the title of the book. Sometimes, uh, quite often, I'll have contests for people to be a character in the book. And I do not promise those characters will come to a good end. In fact, very often they are killed by something. <laughs> yeah, you only hurt the ones you know. Sometimes I'll have, I'll tell them, like, oh, you know, here, here's the first chapter. My first chapters are very short. So I'll post the first chapter on something I'm working on and just kind of see how they react to it. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll give them little, you know, what they call vague booking, little, little, little comments that don't reveal too much, but, you know, are spicy and a little bit of fun, sparks a conversation. I love cover reveals. Like I just got the cover comps for the, um, my next book, Inc. And my cover artist, Rob Brown, who's done all of my Joe Ledger covers, he knocked out of the park with the cover for our next book, just as he did with Rage. Rage is actually my favorite book cover of anything I've ever had. I love that cover when I actually have that one framed. So every, every, you know, when I do a cover reveal, that's usually a big thing on all the social media platforms. People dig that. And it's, you know, it's hashtag, you know, book cover or cover reveal. And people really dig it. And uh, so social media has replaced a lot of the in-person stuff that writers need to do. And it has allowed the conversation to be much more than just a local event. Now, at the same time, I direct them, I, you know, I say, please go to your local bookstore and, and get a copy of the book because you, know, you want to support your brick-and-mortar bookstores. You know, or if, if you're not a brick-and-mortar, go to your online bookseller or audible bookseller or whatever and grab a copy now so we can all get you know have part of that, uh, be part of the conversation, have a little fun celebrating this because there are real deep fans of, of, of these characters, and that's so delightful to talk to them. You're obviously very accomplished. You've written a lot of books. V Wars is being developed into a Netflix show that premieres on December 5th, as I mentioned earlier. What's your end goal? Could we see potentially you moving into screenwriting? Do you think you'll keep uh, focusing on books? What's your plan, your five-year plan, your 10-year plan? Well, probably write for television before I write film. Because I've written a lot of comic books, and comic book scripts are, are, sim are closer to a TV script than, say, a movie script, I'll probably do that. Plus, there's more opportunities to write TV. I mean, if V-Wars gets picked up for a second season, 
there's a pretty good chance I'll, I'll be involved, at least as a consultant in the writer's room, because I'm an executive producer on the show itself. And I may even be able to get a write, a, write, a, write an episode or so. And there are a couple of other projects I have that have that are under option now, including Blitz, a novel I wrote uh, for the same publisher as, uh, as Rage, which is one of my favorite things I've ever written. Um, that's been option too, and that they're thinking about developing a TV show. So I want to be involved in TV, and I would like to write some TV. I don't think I want to be part of a regular writer's room, and I don't yet know if I want to spend the time it would take to write a movie script because in that time I could probably write two novels and I am a novelist I love novels I will continue writing short stories I'm moving more and more to the comic space I was I, I did a lot of stuff for Marvel um, then moved to Dark Horse for uh, one project that I thought was right for them lately I've been writing for IDW but I, I might be doing something for DC I might be doing something else for Marvel you know I love comics so it's pretty much more of you know, what I'm doing now. The only thing I would add to it would probably be um, TV writing. That's my five-year and ten-year plan. Look about the same as what I'm doing now. Are you ready for something we call a series of seemingly random questions? I don't know. <laughs> don't worry, they won't be too random. Okay. The first one, if you could take any writer, living or dead, to any fast food restaurant, which writer would you choose, which restaurant, and why? Okay, that's a pretty easy one. When I first met with uh, Richard Matheson, he absolutely ate the worst, most horrible food in the world. And um, I would like to take him to some of the local taco shops here in San Diego and introduce him to decent fish tacos. Because he said he liked fish, but he couldn't find, you know, most of the fish was fried. We had the best grilled fish tacos out here, best craft beer. And if he was still alive, I'd be dragging him there for decent fish tacos. And all of the restaurants here, whether they're a fast food chain like El Puyo Loco or, or whatever, or fancy restaurants, they all have fresh fish because we live by the ocean. So I would do that with Richard Matheson, and I would pick his brain and talk shop, and we'd geek out about science together. Love it. The next question. If you could choose one learning or insight from your career to pass along to aspiring writers, what would you say? Don't be a jackass. <laughs> Ray Bradbury gave me the Ten Commandments of How to Be a Great Writer. He told me this when I was 13. Commandment one is don't be a jackass. Commandment two is don't be a jackass. Commandment three. And it goes on and on from there. Writers, really good uh, advice for happiness, but also for professional success. Be one of the good guys out there. Don't just look for opportunities for yourself. Look for ways in which you can bring other people into the mix. Look for win-win situations. Because not only does that make you a happy guy, it also opens tons of doors of opportunity. People want to play with the happy kid. Even if all he brought to the playground is a, is a battered cardboard box, because it, it could become a fort, a spaceship, or anything you want. But if you're that broody, selfish kid with the expensive toy who doesn't want anyone to touch it, nobody's going to want to play. So be the kid people want to play with. Don't be a jackass. second part of that, by the way, comes from the second part, is fear or be any part of your business plan. And a lot of people are fear-motivated. I refuse to accept that fear... Is a useful part of any business plan. The second to last question. You created the Writer's Coffee House, a free three-hour open agenda networking and discussion session for writers of all genres and levels of skill in multiple locations around the country. What's your involvement in that? Is that still going on? Are you expanding it? Tell us we, about it. I think we have about 19 of them around the wow. country right now. The most recent one just opened in Tucson. I was out there at the Tuscon Science Fiction Convention. I was about to meet the, the, the founders of that coffee house. It is free. 
We don't discriminate between uh, conventional or, or indie authors. You don't have to be published. Literally, if you just picked up a pen that morning and said, well, I wonder what this could do, then you're a writer and you're welcome. The idea is writers helping writers. It's not a critique thing. It's we, we talk about the craft of writing and the business of publishing. We share ideas. We network. Those of us who are in the biz usually talk about what's going on in the biz, but it's, it's a facilitated conversation where everyone is allowed to speak. No one is required to. And uh, I started them back in, in um, Pennsylvania, Eastern Pennsylvania, about 16 or 17 years ago, and they're continuing to expand. And they're usually hosted by bookstores, and they do a lot of good for writers. And sometimes we get, you know, we have guests like, uh, Tony Eldridge, who's the producer for the Equalizer films, uh, came down and talked about how to pitch to Hollywood. And um, Chris Ryle, who's the publisher at IDW Comics, came in and talked about how to publish, how to pitch to comics. You know, so we have that as well. But often it's just writers need to be around others of their species, and they need to know that some of the the problems that they face, the self doubt, the the different things that are labeled under writer's block, and so on are not unique to them. Other people will have hit them and maybe solved them. And maybe you have something somebody else can use to solve their problems. That kind of networking is absolutely golden, and we all always have a hell of a lot of fun. Love it. The last question. Drum roll, please. I've been handed an invisible envelope that doesn't really exist, but I claim that it's there because of the podcast. I'm opening it, and the question is, did you have fun today? I had a lot of fun today. You asked the right kind of questions. Happy to hear that. Conversation. We had a lot of fun too. I actually feel like this one could have gone on for like another couple hours. So maybe we'll have you back on. Might be back sometimes. More something, more fun stuff to talk about. Very exciting. We're excited about Rage and we're excited about, you know, everything that's coming up. V Wars premieres 12.5. Anything you want to shout out, maybe your Twitter handle, where people can find you or anything that you're excited about. I'm easy to find if you spell my name right. It's Jonathan J-O-N. A-T-H-A-N. Last name is where people get tripped up. It's M-A-B-E-R-R-Y. I know you're going to be tempted to put a Y in the middle of that, but resist the temptation. If you search for Jonathan Mayberry, you'll find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Come follow me. Come join the crazy folk because we're usually doing something weird and funny. And, um, you know, love to have anyone who's out there listening come along and join. Even if my books aren't your taste, come on and join the conversation anyway because we're not we don't just talk about me. We talk about all sorts of that and have a bunch of fun. Well, thank you, Jonathan. Really appreciate your insights, your time, your excitement. Thank you so much, man. Thank you. Man. It was a pleasure being a guest on Writer Experience. It's a pleasure for us to have you. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to the Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.